first one is in Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, please. Verse 10, please. And the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever. And cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 19, please. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your presence with us this morning. Thank you that you're here, Lord, and you're here to examine our hearts, but you're here to bless, to encourage, to lead and to guide, to teach, even to admonish, maybe even to convict hearts. We thank you that you're here in gentleness and in faithfulness. We ask you, Father, in Jesus' name, that when this service is over, when we all go out the door to go home, Christ would be alive in us, real to us. That Christ would be everything to us. Glorify your name in all the earth and in this place. Bless those who are at home and can't be with us. Bless those, Father, who are watching now live and maybe even later, Lord. We pray that you would give them their portion wherever they are. For for this congregation, we ask you, speak to all of our hearts. Help me to break the bread of life, to rightly divide the word of truth, that Christ might be glorified in all things. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Absolute Sovereignty of God, Part 6. Now, if you've missed the other parts, this is completely different today, so we'll refer to one or two other parts, but it's just a reference, really. We started with Revelation chapter 4. Whenever we read this morning, 
But we also started our whole series with Revelation 4, particularly verse 11. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things. Notice, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Full or deity and the sovereignty of Almighty God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice here, we have went through the weeks and shown the, the sovereignty of, of God in, in the nations, sovereignty of God in lives, the sovereignty of God in our salvation, sovereignty of God in our redemption, sovereignty of God even in heaven, sovereignty of God in prophecy. And we've shown you that throughout the nations. But God willing, we might get a little bit more there this morning. So whenever we look, for example, in Revelation chapter 19, if you'll look with me, please. And here is the coming Christ. The Lord Jesus is coming to set up the fullness of his kingdom on earth. And John says, And I saw heaven open, behold, a white horse, and him that sat upon him, Notice, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire. You can go to Revelation 1, and this same person, this same one is seen in Revelation chapter 1. The, the, the very vision that John has given of Almighty God himself. So this is the Son. This is the Lord Jesus. This is the Son of God. And he who is God. He's also called the word of God here. If you'd like to write, run down, please, to verse 13. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the word of God. Notice the word of God. Here we think of John's gospel. John chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Listen, and the word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then when we go on down the chapter, verse 14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the one coming in Revelation chapter 19 is our Lord Jesus Christ. The one coming is the Almighty God in flesh. The one coming is the Son. He's the Lamb who was slain, now risen, exalted, glorified, and he is returning again. So the Almighty God will rule. We have looked at how God will rule with his arm. Christ, the arm of God, coming into the affairs of men. Here he is coming back again. And he will rule over all. Just let yourself, if you will, go back in Revelation chapter 19. Just back up a little bit to verse 3. In fact, let's go to verse 6 for time's sake and you can mark other things down. And I heard, as it were, a voice of a great multitude. And as a voice of many waters. And as a voice of many thunderings saying, Alleluia. For the Lord God omnipoteth reigneth. Now that word, alleluia, is really the, the Greek version of the Hebrew, hallelujah. The hallel of Yah. The hallel of Yahweh. 
And the great Hallel is Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. And these Psalms are the Psalms that were sang by Christ himself whenever he was in the upper room breaking the bread before he went to Gethsemane and his arrest and then being taken and tried by a quango court and then, of course, ending up on the cross at Calvary. So he would have sang Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. And if you're marking uh, your Bible there in Psalm 119, Alleluia is mentioned in verse 1. After these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation, glory, and honor and power unto the Lord our God. So there's the first one. The second one is in verse 3. And again, they said, Alleluia, and their smoke rose up forever and ever. This is when the judgment of God is coming. And then when we read, we've read it in verse 6. Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipoteth reigneth. And when you go into verse 7, you find then there is the marriage of the Lamb, or the marriage supper of the Lamb. So it's all to do with the coming of Christ again. It's all to do with God coming in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just for those who are taking notes, the the word Alleluia, the Lord, for the Lord God omnipoteth reigneth. The words here for Lord is kurios. And it really means the supreme sovereign. It can mean sir in various contexts. But when regarding the Lord, it means the supreme in control, the sovereign. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. He is, God is theos, where we get theology from. Theos, so it is. And the omnipotent is the word pantocrator. Pantocrator. And then Basilio is for reigneth. And this is the way we'd read. Curios, Theos, Pantocrator, Basilio. And they're crying this to Christ. Singing it to Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. The Almighty God. Who they are crying hallelujah. The Hallel Psalms. They are now singing it. And it gives the idea. The one who holds sway of all things. The one who holds sway of all things and everything, the almighty ruler of all, is coming. The Messiah, the Son of God. That's what they're really crying out here. And by the time we get to Revelation 19, we see the word who was with God and is God is now coming again in Christ. Verse 12 of Revelation 19, please. Verse 12. Of Revelation 19. And his eyes were as a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written. That no man knew. But he himself. Now underline, underline there. And on his head. On Christ's head. Were many crowns. Ever wonder what that would look like? Can't you get a whole lot of crowns in one head? I hope to help you with the meaning of some of these things this morning. Okay, so underline that, and then go to Revelation chapter 4 again, and verse 10. We touched on this in our first morning. We touched on this in our first morning. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 10. And the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne, 
and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. So who are they worshipping? They're worshipping God. They're worshipping Jesus. Notice, and cast their crowns before him, saying, Thou art worthy. So those men before him cast their crowns before Christ. So now some people might automatically think when we get to Revelation 19, ah, so then he gathers those crowns, and that's what they are. No, they're not. No, they're not. We're going to look at it because the crown changes. Why would I teach you all this especially on a Lord's Day morning? Because I believe God's people need to learn the scriptures. And I'm going to move this because this may be in your way. So they're casting their crowns down in Revelation 4 and verse 10. Now the word for crowns there is the word Stephanos. Stephanos, S-T-E-P-H-A-N-O-S. It's where we get the word Stephen from. Stephanos. And then whenever we think of this, this word Stephanos, remember I told you how this gives the idea of Roman or Greek games. It was like a, a laurel wreath, a crown around, like a laurel wreath. And it was for men who partook in games and excelled. So this is an overcoming body in Christ. These are for those who are faithful unto the end. Serving Christ. Receiving, as it were, like the Olympics, the gold, the silver, and the bronze medal. There they have their laurel wreath around them. They have, they have went on to the very last. They have breasted the tape that God has set them on the race. They have received the crown, as it were, of righteousness, as Paul talks about. Henceforth there is led up for me a crown of righteousness that the Lord will give me, he says. And so here is the word Stephanos, like a laurel wreath around the head. Now when we get to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's crowned with many crowns in Revelation chapter uh, 19, it is not the word Stephanos, but the word diadem. It is a diadem. Or if you would prefer the, the Greek rendering a diadema. And notice here the difference. One is the crowns of men. Man's achievement in Revelation 4. In Revelation 19, it's Christ's royal and regal right. The crowns of Revelation 4 and 10, these men have achieved something. But here in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10, Christ's are his by regal and royal right. The crowns of Christ and the crowns of men. And hence these men throw their crown down before him. They throw down their labors, their service, their work, as if to say, Lord, you alone are worthy, for without you we could do none of this. And they throw the crowns down before the living Christ. Notice here, the head on the crowns of men are not diadems, but Stephanos. A diadem was a a kingly royal ornament for the head. A kingly royal ornament. 
The Stephanos is used 18 times in the New Testament. And so whenever we look at this, we can see the complete difference. Will you go with me, please, to Mark chapter 15? Mark chapter 15. Why would these men throw down their crowns before Christ if they had hard labored? If it was you or I, brothers and sisters, what if it was you and I and we had labored hard? You went through so many trials and troubles and tribulations. You'd pressed on in God. But sure, I got done that. Well, we're going to look at that first of all this morning. Why Christ deserves all the glory. Why he deserves every crown. And why we should be willing and ready to throw them, cast them down at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 15, please. And let your eye run down to verse 16. And the soldiers led him, the Lord Jesus, away into the hall called Praetorium. And they called together the whole band, and they clothed him with purple and plaited a crown of thorns and put it about his head. The crown of thorns is a Stephanos crown. It's a crown made with men's hands. I want you to get the difference here. It's a Stephanos. It's a crown which is made by the Praetorium Guard and driven into the sacred brow of the Lord Jesus Christ. So notice this. I'm going to ask you to flick through a few verses with me. Just going to pick out a verse here and there. I'm going to show you why we should cast our crowns down at the feet of Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 25. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 25. And you'll see here, for example, we have that crown of thorns which was driven into the brow of Christ. It's Stephanos of crown. Man's work, man's ability. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 25. And every man that striveth for mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown. But we, an incorruptible. But we, an incorruptible. Notice, and every man striveth for mastery. See the word there, mastery? It means, it's the word agonosomai. And it's where we get our word agony from. Agony. And so every man strives. It gives the idea of sportsmen who were ready to go into coliseums or into games. For example, they had to go on a strict diet. They had to go into strict course of training. They were told what to eat, when to eat, where to eat, when to sleep, when to arise, how to train, They were put through training and it was a punishing, agonizing system. And Paul is saying that there are men who are striving for this mastery, for this agonizing crown, which is corruptible. You see this, that every man may strive for the mastery is temperate. The word really means If a man is training up well, he starts to be able to contain his own spirit. 
Listen, a Christian man or woman, but a Christian who doesn't learn to contain their own spirit. We all have our failures. We all have our faults. We don't learn how to control their own spirit, their own temperaments, their own moods, their own aggressions. They're not striving right with God. That's what Paul's saying here. Men are striving to be able to control themselves to go into this, either games or whether it be something else, or Colosseum even. And they're told how to control themselves from their worries, to control themselves from their fears. Years ago, when obviously many years ago, when I used to fight, I was excited for weeks and weeks before it as we went into punishing routines to prepare ourselves to fight. I mean, you were punished for weeks. You, 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 you denied yourself things. It's not just a matter of training a bit and go and fight. You had to go into punishing routines for weeks. You had to learn when you were about to peak in your fitness because you can go over tired and then drop again. But I was so excited every moment of it, looking forward to it. And then as you get up to the day or two before it, the nerve starts. Now, David, you start to feel the fear of it. And I had to learn, we have to learn when we were in there, that you had to shut the fear out and learn how to control that emotion. Because if you didn't control it, once you stepped in that ring, your fight was gone. So I learned to fear no one and nothing. That's not a boast. And that's what we've done. We trained for it. And when I stepped in, yes, nerves, adrenaline, but fear and emotion was out the window. And also even to feel sorry for your opponent. You learned to not feel sorry for them. Even when they were hurt, you were going out to finish them. Paul is saying that in Christ we can do this. Men strive for this. Women strive for this. For worldly things. They strive even to know, well, you know what? Their emotion of, I can't be bothered. I'll I'll stay in, but no, I'll go to work. They get up and they go. They learn how to get out and do. But in the church, many of us don't learn how to do this. And even we know we can, we don't. And Paul is saying, men, do it for a a, a temporary, uh, corruptible Stephanos. They will get a laurel wreath around their head. Everyone will clap them all well done. But at the end of it all, it will corrupt itself. But if we do it in in the spirit for Christ, for his crown and covenant, then we can learn how to do that for the glory of God. An incorruptible crown. An incorruptible crown. And the incorruptible crown here, and Paul is saying, we are looking for a, a crown that we will persevere in. The perseverance of the saints is that when we are saved and the Holy Spirit is in us, we will persevere through things. 
persevere with people. We will persevere with challenges. We will persevere in the faith. We will persevere when people hate us or dislike us or say all manner of evil against us. We will persevere. You have to persevere, Christian. Persevere. And you persevering in it is not your glory. It is the preservation of the Holy Spirit who is in you. I want to say it again. I want you to get it. When you're persevering, and things are hard, you don't feel saved. The Spirit of God seems to be far from you. The presence of God seems like it's nowhere around you. Brothers and sisters, he's within you. And it's him who brings you through. So you persevering, like the men at the games, you persevering is the preservation of the Spirit in you. Do you know why you're here when you've had a bad week? Do you know why you're here when you've been tried and tested maybe up till maybe this moment? Because of the Spirit preserving you. And hence, you're obedient and yielding to the Spirit of God. You will persevere with it and you'll go on. It's it's difficult. Listen, being a Christian isn't easy. Being a Christian is a, a fight. Being a Christian is a battle of the mind. Being a Christian is a battle of wills between your will and God's. Being a Christian, you've entered a war. But I want to tell you, you're on the winning team. You're on the right side, brothers and sisters. And no matter what is thrown against us, the preservation of the Spirit in you, it's He who causes you to persevere. It's Him in you. That's why you're here this morning. You know what? I had a bad week. See if I told you of the, in fact, there's things I haven't even mentioned to you, Allison. See if I told you of the reports that I got back this week from people privately about those who have been slandering me all around the country. Just this week. Happens all the time anyway. But I mean this week. This week. People don't even know me and have slandered me. Never met me and have slandered me. You have to persevere. And the church is getting weak and effeminate. Brothers and sisters, it's time to stand up, stand up for Jesus and be soldiers off the cross. Stand up for him. Open thy mouth and I will fill it, he says. And persevere. And you realize your perseverance is the preservation of the Holy Spirit who is in you. And Paul says, and every man striveth or agonizes for this mastery, he's temperate in all things, learns how to control himself, that he might win the crown. Brothers and sisters, let's learn how to control ourselves, even our mouths, that we might win the crown. It's incorruptible. It's a Stephanos. And so when we get there, the crown of preservation of the spirit, perseverance of the saint. When we get there, that Stephanos crown we will cast at Jesus' feet. Why? Because we would have failed completely without him. The day and hour that we are living in, the church has been shown up. The church... I'm talking about universal has been shown up 
There's a difference between the men and the boys. The church has been showing up about who really is a professor of Christ, professing and who is a possessor of Christ. Turn with me to another one, please. Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4, please, and verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, and long for my joy and crown. Paul says, You're my crown. So the first crown is a crown of perseverance. The second crown is a crown of evangelism, winning souls for Christ. Can I ask you, do the people that you work with know that you're saved? Do they know that you're saved? Paul winning those for Christ, he says, when we get there, those are those who have come through for God. I mean, come through with Holy Ghost conviction. They have come through to serve him. And Paul says, on that day, there's a crown for us. And he says, you are my crown. In other words, he's saying, they're not literally a crown put together. He says, but you are like a crown of a Stephanus around my head. Notice what he says in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 19. 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 19. For what is our joy or hope, pardon me, what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? He says, what do I rejoice in as Paul the Apostle? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? Paul says, you know what I rejoice in? I rejoice in you. I'll speak of myself and not speak of other pastors or other people. Do you know my greatest joy in the service of Christ is? To see people come through for God and get saved. But you know my greatest joy really is after that? When I watch people grow in God. Not saved and stuck. But grow in faith. And grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. When I see them growing in God, there's people who have been saved with, under me and they're with me maybe 12 years or so. To see them going on in God and growing in God is tremendous. It's, it's my crown of rejoicing. It's my Stephanos. But on that day when I get there and I'm standing before the Lord, I will take that Stephanos off and say, Lord, I didn't get them really. Yes, I might have preached the word or I might have held a mission and I might have done whatever, but it's nothing to do with me, Lord. Only you can save. You have done it, Jesus. You've done it. There's not a man, not an evangelist, not a pastor alive, not a preacher on the planet, bar Christ himself, that can save a soul. Jesus only. And that crown will be thrown before his feet. The crown of the perseverance of the saints will be thrown before his feet. The crown of those of evangelized, but have been evangelized and come through from God will be thrown at the feet of Jesus. Cast before him. Thou art worthy. Not me. Not you. Thy Lord and thou alone art worthy. 
Christ has the preeminence. Christ has the preeminence in heaven. He's seated on the throne. He he has the preeminence in glory. He has the preeminence among the saints. And when he returns, he will have the preeminence over all the earth and the universe. I'm going to say, Lord, this is not my doing. It's all of yours. That's your crown. I'm glad I'm saved myself. (laughs) Let me run through another one for you, please. James chapter 1 and verse 12 says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Here's a crown of endurance. It's the Stephanos. I believe uh, James is alluding here now to the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead in Christ. That this body that is corruptible in the ground, this body that's been laid there and has went to dust and powder, that this body will be resurrected incorruptible. That's a crown we'll throw at the feet of Jesus. That's a crown we'll throw or cast at the feet of Jesus. It's a, the crown of endurance when we go through things. In fact, in First Peter 5 and 4, he says something similar. First Peter 5 and 4, And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. We will be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we're told. This corruptible shall put on incorruption. This mortal shall put on immortality. We're told, and we shall see him as he is, and we shall be like him. That's a crown for us all. Not a laurel wreath around our head. But this is symbolic to say we will fall our whole salvation, our full redemption, our perseverance in this life is your preservation, O God. And when you come, we will fall at your feet, casting those crowns and saying, Thou art worthy! Thou alone art worthy. Because it's for his pleasure all are and were created. So, Revelation 3 and 11 Here's a little warning for us. The Lord says, Behold, I come quickly. That doesn't mean immediately. It means I'll come when you're not expecting me to come. Three and eleven, Revelation three and eleven. Behold, I come quickly, hold that fast which thou hast. Notice that no man may take your crown. Now, we usually in the uh, preachers would say, oh, well, if you're uh, serving in the church, don't let a man take your crown. You know, be faithful. And, and in a sense, if you're not faithful, someone will come as faithful and eventually take your crown. That's not really what it means here. I don't believe that's what the Lord is alluding to. The Lord is saying, don't let anyone rob you of your victory. Don't let anyone 
rob you of the victory. What victory? The victory that Christ has given to us. The victory of the blood. The victory of his sacrifice. The victory of his resurrection. The victory of his spirit within you. Don't let any man rob you off this victory. People come and they, they say things and they do things on you and it robs you. It makes you, makes you doubt your salvation. It makes you double think yourself and double check yourself. Not talking about someone who's living a life in the world and they're doing nothing but sinning with importunity. If a man or a woman keeps sinning with importunity and professing Christ, I wonder, do they ever possess Christ? When I got saved, I got saved. And when I got saved, I left the world. And when I got saved, Christ took me from a horrible pit and from the Mary clay, and he set my feet upon a rock and he established my goings, put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God, many shall see it and shall fear and shall trust in the Lord. And brothers and sisters, those who say they're saved, those who profess Christ, oh yes, I've said a wee prayer, I've walked up the aisle or I've done whatever it needs done and they don't have any fruit showing and there's nothing in their lives to show that they're saved, then they're not saved. They're not saved. Backslidden, I wonder if half of them have ever frontslidden. Were they ever at the cross at all? Were they ever at the foot of Christ? Were they ever washed in the blood? Did they ever know him whatsoever? Listen, when I got saved, Christ rescued me from the world. He delivered me from the things of the world. When I got saved and tasted and seen that the Lord was good, I realized how filthy and putrefying the world really is and the things that I had eaten and partaken of, how sinful and lustful and worldly and how God hates it. I wonder, do they know him at all? Because if you have truly tasted of Christ, listen, I was the chiefest of sinners. I'm not here, Han Almighty. I was the chiefest of sinners. I know where the Lord rescued me from and I know what he brought me from and I know where he saved me out of and I know what he washed me from. I know what he's done for me. That's why I love him. That's why I love him. That's why I want to persevere in the faith. That's why I want to go on with him. That's why I want to serve him. That's why I want to see people saved. That's why I want to see backsliders restored. That's why I want to see Christ's church victorious and triumphant in Christ. Instead of become sissified and effeminized. Brothers and sisters, here we find that the Lord's saying, don't let anyone, it's a golden crown. It's a golden Stephanos. It's a different one. It's what Christ has done, the victory of the cross. When Christ gave his life up on the cross, when Christ died for you and I, it wasn't a failure. It wasn't a defeat. In fact, the Pope said it was a failure. It was not a failure said that Christ went to the cross and it was a failure. 
When Christ went to the cross, it was in the Father's will. It was the Father's plan and purpose. And when Christ went to the cross, he was victorious in going to the cross. And he went all the way for us. And he shed his blood for us that we might be saved and redeemed. Why was such a thought? I notice this, brothers and sisters. Boys, the dear time's gone already. In Revelation 14, I'll do this quickly. Give me five minutes. 14 and 14, John says, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. See this golden crown of Christ. It's a Stephanos. It's a victory crown. Christ gives us the victory in all of this. But I want you to see in Revelation chapter 19, please. Revelation chapter 19. And let your eye run down to verse 12. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but himself. See the many crowns. The crowns are not Stephanos, but diadem. Kingly, regal crowns. Kingly, regal crowns. It's only used three times in the whole of the New Testament. And here's your three times quickly. I'll read the verses out, make a comment, and that's us finished. What sort of diadems are these? Where do these come from? We've shown you the sort of crowns that we'll cast at his feet. But here's the golden diadem. And all of this, he covers all those other diadems. It's all his doing. So what are these? Pardon me, Stephanos. What are these diadems he has on his head in Revelation 19? You ready? Let your eye run down, if you will. Let's go to Revelation 12. Or else you're going to just let me read it and you can write it down and go yourself just for time's sake. Revelation 12 and verse 3, And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. Notice, seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns upon his head. Revelation 13 and verse 1 says, And I stood... Upon the sand of the sea, and saw a beast rise out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the names of blasphemy. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole ins and outs. I've actually taught on this uh, a few times. I've taught on this a few times. For example, the diadems in Christ's head We've already said those are the only three places. Revelation chapter 19, Revelation chapter 13, and Revelation chapter 12 going backwards. If you look, it says there's ten crowns in Revelation 13 and 1, and there's seven crowns in Revelation 12 and 3. I believe that's the crowns that are on the head of Christ. Because they're all diadems. You know what they are? They're crowns of heads of state. They are crowns of leaders of nations. And if you remember, 
in part four, we went to the book of Daniel chapter two. And Nebuchadnezzar, who had taken away the house of Judah into Babylon, had a dream. And Daniel told him the dream and then interpreted the dream. And there was a man with a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly of brass, legs of iron, and feet of iron and clay. And we showed you how they are all kingdoms that were to come. He says to, Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, thou art this head of gold. And there's another king coming, I'm paraphrasing. And that was the silver kingdom of the Medes and the Persians with the two arms that would take over Babylon from the head of gold. And you'll read that in Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar's feast. And all of a sudden, Darius and Cyrus, the Medes and the Persians, come and take over Babylon. And then we had Alexander the Great comes after them in a lot of years' time. And then we had their pagan Roman empire. Alexander the Great was the brass midriff, then the iron legs. And in time, it brings us right through to ten kingdoms that were around Italy at the time. There was the pagan Rome of iron. And when the pagan Rome empire started to die, the papal Roman empire started to rise. And these were their crowns of these leaders. And it says there's a stone cut out without hands. In other words, it's not man-made. And it comes and it smashes the kingdoms of the gold, the silver, the bronze, and the iron, and the iron and clay. Smashes them to bits at the feet, and they all come tumbling down. And the stone kingdom is the kingdom of the coming Christ. Revelation chapter 19. Make sense to you? Revelation 19. He's crowned with many crowns. Many diadem of leaders and nations and peoples. And who is he? He is the almighty God in flesh. So when we say that he is God who puts his arm in, he brings him into world affairs and into individual lives. Brothers and sisters, I grew up a nominal Presbyterian. Doing up with brackets, don't like doing up, I'm going to do it. A nominal Presbyterian. Never really went, except when I was young, the BB and things like that. I can tell you now, I knew not what it was to be saved. I didn't know what it was to be saved. And I was in the world. If anybody asked me, and what, what religion are you? Well, I'm a Protestant. What denomination are you? Well, I'm a Presbyterian. Didn't go. You can claim to be a prod all you like. You can be the biggest loyalist prod in the whole of Ulster. But see if you're not saved. See if you've not given your life to Christ. You're the biggest loyalist lost prod in Ulster. You're lost without him. You're not saved with, with, without him. It took God to come into our lives to save us. It took God to come in. We can sit in our church and we could stroke the T's. We could dot the I's. We can know the Bible. Well, I go to my, I go to my Protestant denomination and I sit there all the time and I, I could tell you all this word. But maybe in your head, but he's not in your heart, maybe. You're not saved then. Isn't that right? I'm to tell you the truth. 
took God himself to come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It took his spirit to come, the Holy Spirit to come, and, and he had to quicken us. It took God to move. I want you to get this as well. This is my last day in this. It took God, listen, it took the God of heaven. It took the God of glory to actually move. To move, to come from heaven to earth, to become a man, to grow, that he might die for us. That's what it took for a guilty non if you want, a nominal Presbyterian. I was a heathen. I was lost. I was a big sinner. And it took God himself to come to wake this man up in the spirit to show the Son. It took the absolute sovereignty of God. Understand, brothers and sisters, it takes the absolute Sovereignty of the Spirit of God to come into a life, to come into a heart, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what foot you kick with. It takes an absolute sovereign move. A sovereign move, absolutely from God to waken a man and a woman up from the sleep of death in their sin, that they might behold the Lamb of God. They may behold Christ. But I want to tell you in the sovereign will and move of God, if he does that to you, and you truly behold Christ, you will truly be saved and kept. I'm going to say it again, brothers and sisters. That's what it took for God to come to save you and me. And since God has come, if God has done that and regenerated our hearts and our spirits and has woken us up and we have beheld the Lamb, we could do nothing else through irresistible grace but call for mercy. So, the absolute sovereignty of God, part six, is over. But Thomas Watson said, there are three things in providence. God's foreknowing, God's determining, and God's directing all things into their periods and events. So listen, if you're worried about what's going on in the world today, the world isn't out of control. Everything in the world has just fallen into place. Because God says, I'm still on the throne. And he orders all things after the counsel of his own will. Don't let anyone rob your victory from Christ's golden Stephanos. Nor let anyone take charge of our lives over Christ's diadem as our King of kings and our Lord of lords. Let none do it. Let none rob Christ of you for the things of the world, the pleasures of the world, the riches of the world, or even wrong government legislation. We have one king. And he's in heaven. He's called the Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless us all this morning.